Fan drive time, Sportsnet 590, the fan, Ben Ennis and Blake Murphy. I mean, what what has gone unsaid in the Carlos Correa discussion is that is like the deal with the Mets is also still pending a physical, right? Like, I, I think we assume whatever the problem was in the Giants physical is not going to be a hindrance for the New York Mets. But yeah, this is all just reported stuff. Nothing's actually been been written in stone um, as exemplified by today's events is Carlos Correa was was in his media conference suit and then he, he wasn't being introduced by the San Francisco Giants. Let's talk to our pal Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. How's it going, Adnan? Ben, Blake, a pleasure to be with you guys. This is about as stunning as the ending of The Usual Suspects, right? You see Kaiser Soze limping, and then all of a sudden he just comes to full grace, and then Kevin Spacey's smoking a cigarette. You go, oh, my God, it's him! That's what happened here. Apparently Correa flunks the physical. Susan Slosser does a fantastic job. The Hall of Fame writer, San Francisco Chronicle, longtime A's writer, said apparently, <coughs> excuse me, it's an issue that popped up with Correa pre-Major League Baseball. So some sort of issue popped up with the Cardinals itself has never been a hindrance. Like in the past, it's a back issue. Apparently it was not that, though. It was something that came pre-Major League Baseball. They balked. And how about Scott Boris? He goes, oh, you don't like it? No problem. I'll go call my buddy Steve Cohen, who's in Hawaii. Hey, Steve, you want to give $350 million to Korea? No problem. 2.38 a.m. Eastern is when our man John Heyman breaks the story and Korea becomes a man. Unbelievable. We've seen moves fall apart because of a poor physical, because of health issues. But I've never seen, guys, that kind of a turnaround. Like, we're talking within 12 hours, they cancel the press conference, and he's going from New York instead of San Francisco. Just an incredible turn of events and proof once again. You're not going to beat Steve Cohen. He spent $806 million this offseason. When you add the luxury tax in addition to the Mets payroll, we're talking half a billion dollars, $502 million. But he gets Correa, who I think is an absolute star, and clearly bolsters that Mets lineup. Adnan, I want to stick to the baseball talk eventually but you made the kaiser soze comparison and i i have to wonder now does usual suspects have a much less satisfying end if part of the interview process for suspects is a physical because they would have seen that kaiser soze didn't have anything that necessitated that limp <laughs> that point. is uh, definitely a next-level evaluation of the usual suspects. It's something I have not considered. But that is true, Blake. You would think at some point they would say, well, this guy's damn good here. He can exactly hear. You know, if he's caught in a foot race here, a guy's just going down. So, yes, there is definitely perhaps uh, more than meets the eye when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, and you, you just, we all just spoiled that movie for, for many people who haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. come on. Statute of limitations on spoilers. <laughs> if it's on the top. 1995 now. Come on. Yeah. If it's, it's on the. If, That's enough. It's okay. If it's on the top 100 of all time list and yeah. you know what? 1995. If, if the movie came out right around the time we got the wild card, mm-hmm. you uh, uh, don't get to cry spoiler on it. No, it's a, it's a great, great point. We'll get to that Variety's uh, list of top uh, 100 movies of all time in in a second here, Adnan. But yeah, Blake just mentioned it. Like, since the wild card, uh, it, it, it was instituted in 1995, um, what, what did I say? 13 of the 28 World Series winners have been top five in payroll. So, no, are the Mets guaranteed to, to win a World Series having this half a billion dollar payroll? No, but it does... I get, it puts them in in the mix here. How do you how do you feel about the correlation between having a high payroll and and on field su- success in this sport? It's a 
perfect way of saying it, Ben. Just because you've got the highest salary doesn't mean you're going to win. But, boy, it sure does help. Like, if I'm a New York Mets fan, I'm like, man, thank God for Steve Cohen, the fact he has blessed himself on our franchise and is willing to spend. Because, ultimately, when you look at that team, yeah, there could be some injuries. Yeah, <laughs> there could be some challenges with age. But there's six Cy Youngs in their top two starters in Scherzer, Scherzer and Berlander. What's called the Scherlander. Well, combine the two like Zoolander. But Kodai Senga is supposed to be a very good pitcher. He's your number three. Quintana had a 206 ERA with the Cardinals. He's your number four. Like, it's amazing how good their depth is and the way they're able to just revamp on the fly and lose Bassett with the Blue Jays and lose DeGrom to the Rangers and lose Tywin Walker and not even be bat an eye. So it's, it's remarkable the way they revamped. And their lineup now with Nimmo leading off, who's an on-base machine, although he's overpaid. But, again, I'm glad the Jays didn't give $120 million. But then you're going two, three, four, five. Like, when you're talking Correa, Lindor, Alonzo, McNeil, that's fantastic. Then you're getting into your Starling Martes, you know, your Mark Cannons, Eduardo Escobars. Like, top to bottom, just talent-wise, the Mets have as good a lineup as anybody, and that National League East is such a bear. The Phillies made the World Series and still on paper feel like the third-best team. They're still behind the Mets and the Braves. But I think prior to this move and prior to this offseason, Atlanta, for many people, feels like the better team. Not now. Like, New York's the better team. And back to your overarching point, Ben, you know, if you're going to spend, you're generally going to make the dance, and especially mm. now in the playoffs. Like, God, I can't imagine the Mets not making the playoffs. And now the playoffs feel like a crapshoot. Like, just make it, and who knows what can happen from then. So for Stevie Cohn, he's guaranteed his Mets will make the playoffs. World Series are bust, sure, but they're going to make it. And after that, who knows what could happen. Well, uh, in, in the early days, and by the way, like, it doesn't sound like you'd pass a, a physical right now, right, uh, uh, Adnan? So hopefully <laughs> you get that figured out. Um, just but- a link. A- Lingering cough here over the holidays. Don't worry, I don't have COVID. A Dayquil shot will do me fine. Go ahead. All right. I was just going to say, at the beginning of uh, the wild card era, between 96 and 2000, the New York Yankees won four or five World Series with a top two payroll in baseball. It was just one of those years that they were second. They were first in payroll uh, for the majority of those those World Series titles. And you, you live in the New York area, and the Mets have been the little brother to the Yankees' big brother, and there's still a Steinbrenner name in in uh, the executive suite at Yankee Stadium. But uh, what kind of pressure does this put on a Yankees team that re-signed Aaron Judge? So this, they outlaid the money uh, for the biggest free agent fish out there, but there's still massive holes on this team, and the payroll discrepancy is now huge between them and the Mets. It's a very unfamiliar feeling for the Yankees fan and for Yankees management. Steinbrenner and the Yankees led in payroll every year from 99 to, I believe, 2013. Like, every year you knew. I looked at 2005. The Yankees' payroll was $208 million. The Red Sox was like 131, and the Mets was at 105, and that was it. Those are the only three over 100. The Yankees have that wide disparity. But now they're going to have to realize that you can't just reward and rely upon your financial wherewithal, you're going to have the talent to win. And I think ultimately, when I look at this Yankees team, Ben, I think they've closed the gap with the Astros. I don't think they're better than Houston. But the Astros have lost Verlander, and the Yankees retained Judge. You could say, okay, it's status quo, sure. But they added Rodon. And Rodon, I think the last couple of years, has been a top-ten pitcher in baseball, maybe top five. 
that's a pretty significant upgrade for Jamison Tyone. When you look at that rotation now, and you're able to trot out Severino as a three and Cole as an ace. So I think ultimately the Yankees are a better team. They're not the best team in the American League. They're not even the best team in New York right now, the way the Mets played. But the Yankees are still going to be formidable. I still think they're the best team to beat in the American League East. So in the <laughs> NL West, the Giants miss out on Correa. Their fans are in a bad way here, I'm sure. Um, if you're the Giants front office, what the heck do you do from this? Because the move of going on tilt to try to throw that money at someone else, the, there just aren't those names left. Like, what do you what do you do in San Fran's position here? This is an absolute catastrophe for the San Francisco Giants, Blake. No question about it. They haven't had a superstar since Buster Posey retired. So this past season, with respect to Brandon Crawford, who's now the face of the franchise, like he's 36, turning 37 years old. He's a very good shortstop, but he's not a star. He's not a face of your franchise. If I see San Francisco Giants, the face is Gabe Kapler. His handsome, sculpted face and his incredible Greek god of a body. That's the San Francisco Giants. They're a 500 team, and they're trotting up the manager as like the face of that team. You needed a guy, so go get a guy. And you struck out on Judge, and then you couldn't get anybody else. Like, that is embarrassing. When you look at what's left now, like, we're talking the likes of Gene Segura. Mm. Like, we're talking, you know, uh, Michael Waka. Like, it is very sparse now in terms of the p- position players. And star- Michael Conforto, for God's sake, is like the last great star of Bell. Are you kidding? Like, that's not even close to what you need. Like, whatever you're going to do now, you're supplementing with small parts, and, and it's going to be just awfully frustrating to sell that to that fan base. The Giants just had their lowest attendance ever at Oracle. Previously, Pac Bell Park, I think it's been around since 99, 2000, something like that, right? When Bond started hitting all those home runs. So that's alarming to me when I say, hey, this fan base is supposed to be pretty robust. They had the lowest attendance they've ever had at this park. Let's go out and get a star that can sell some tickets. Judge could have been that guy. Oh, Correa could have been that guy. Oh, we're 0 for 2 now, and there's nothing left. The Padres clearly got better by signing Bogarts and will now have a full year of Soto and Hayter and others. And hopefully my guy Nando comes back mm. without needles and fully healthy and rejuvenated. The Dodgers have lost the Turners, Justin and Trey and Tyler Anderson, who had a very good year as a starter, but they're still felt that they're probably the best in the West. But I think the Padres have closed that gap. I think they trailed them by 22 games in the West. Maybe they lose the division by five games. The Giants have done nothing. Like, it's atrocious right now to be a Giants fan. It's very frustrating. Yeah, and and you mentioned Michael Conforto, who might be at the top of the free agent pile right now, a guy that has been linked to the Blue Jays as well, also a Scott Boris client, but a guy that hasn't played baseball since 2021 with the shoulder injury, and when he last played baseball in 2021, it was his worst season since his sophomore year. Like, he had an OPS plus of 100. So he's a league average offensive player. Before that, he was really, really good. Uh, when he had a shoulder and, and such. And apparently he's throwing 150 feet now, so so that's good. Um, like, wh- how comfortable would you be if you were a team in the Michael Conforto sweepstakes, if we can call it that, which the Blue Jays apparently are? Yeah, I don't feel great about it, man. <laughs> it has to be the low-risk, high AAV, right? It's got to be like a Bellinger-type deal with the Chicago Cubs, let me take a one-year deal, prove that I'm healthy, and then go back in the open market. I, I couldn't imagine a world in which I'm giving Michael Conforto a three-year deal. It probably feels like a two years for $20 million, opt out after one. And as I say that, by the way, I think that's reasonable. Joey Gallo, for God's sakes, is getting $11 million. Like, it's crazy. I'm like, wait, Joey Gallo hit a buck sixty. Now, I'm aware he is a two-time All-Star. I'm aware of the fact he has a potential at 40 home runs, but he hit a buck 60, and he got an $11 million contract. So 
maybe I'm wrong on Conforto. Maybe he's getting a $15 million one-year contract. But ultimately, you can't be giving a lot of term. For a guy who hasn't played, and as you absolutely correctly point out, Ben, he wasn't good when he did. It wasn't like he has the benefit of saying, well, I had a great season, then I got hurt, now I'm healthy again. No, no, he had a bad season. Then he got hurt for a year and didn't play. So I, I would be very risk-averse in signing him. As you say, the Jays are in play because he is that lefty bat. He has some power. Hopefully a one-year deal, the high AAV, and that's it. Adnan, uh, pivoting sports here. Uh, I don't know what your holiday viewing plan is, but your Eagles play on Christmas Eve against the Cowboys. I'm not going to frame this Jalen Hurts injury and his potential absence on Saturday as a negative because the outcome of that, first of all, there's just not, you know, the the Eagles have a lot of opportunities still to, to clinch that by. But the positive here is we could get another look at my guy, Gardner Minshew. Uh, how excited would you be to, to yeah. see uh, the Minshew, you know, uh, another look at him in Philly on Saturday. Minshew mania and his mustache would yep. be fantastic theater on Christmas Eve. But the number one number is one because it's one more win to clinch the number one seed. And that's all that matters. The fact there's only one one seed now in both conferences, which makes it that much easier to make the Super Bowl, is of paramount importance. And for the Eagles, they are one win away from doing so. So don't play Hurts. It's totally fine. We've got three opportunities, including the Saints on New Year's Day at home and the Eagle, uh, the Giants, excuse me, at home the following week, who we completely dusted in the Meadowlands 20 minutes from my home. So, um, my view is be cautious, be super cautious. Like when Sirianni's saying, well, he's not necessarily ruled out. I'm like, don't rule him out. Like, it's yeah. fine. Like, we, we don't need a hurt Jalen Hurts playing and then gets hurt further. Rest him. Because you know what? You can beat the Cowboys with Minshew. Like, we're demonstrably a better team. The Cowboys, for God's sakes, picked the loss of the Jaguars. Like, they, that team almost lost the Texans. They've got problems all over the place. Like, don't fall into the luster of the star and Jerry Jones and Dak Prescott. Like, they're, they're struggling right now. And the Eagles can play a B-minus game and still beat the Chicago Bears in 21-degree weather. We can still have three turnovers and Hurts is picked twice. It's never in doubt that Philadelphia's not going to win the game. They've got an incredible offensive line, a great running game with Miles Sanders. I'm like, you know what, bro? It's all good. We're going to run Sanders on first and second down, play action Gardner Minshew. He'll make enough plays, throw for 220 yards, and the Eagles still win that game 31-17 in Dallas or 27-20, whatever it is. And if they lose, hey, no big deal. Jalen will come back the following week. We'll clinch the one seed against New Orleans. So I, I would err on the side of caution, but to your point, Blake, any chance to see Gardner Minshew and Minshew Mania is something I'm behind. Yeah, um, your Flyers are, are in Toronto tomorrow to play an afternoon affair against the nice. Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, the yeah. Flyers stink, uh, and, and, and it didn't take long for, for John Tortorella to, to wear out his welcome uh, going into battle against the team's leading scorer in Kevin Hayes. Uh, how, do you, how do you evaluate that battle, and how do you evaluate the early returns on John Tortorella's tenure in Philly? He's got the quote of the year on Morgan Frost. His play has been more up and down than a toilet seat, which is just, I mean, fantastic on all different levels. But you're right. This flyer season has gone to the crapper after winning three games in five of our first seven. And yet I've been to see three Flyers games incidentally with this past Thursday to go see my guys against the Devils. The night of the MLB Network work party, I go, no, no, I'm going to get Flyers-Devils tickets. My buddy Ken Danico hooked me up, two tickets, the wristband, free pizza, free ice cream. Like This is like Matt Devlin treatment here that I got 
uh, at the Prudential Center. So in person, I got to tell you, my Flyers look great, beating the Devils, cooling off them two to one. But ultimately, they've got a pop gun offense, man. Like they can't score worth a you know what. Like I'm watching that offense going. You're expecting Owen Tippett to be like a 30 goal scorer. It better be connecting or Hayes or Van Riemsdyk every night because Atkinson and Couturier and obviously Ellis are all out. So it's it's one of those teams where you're going to have to win two on every night. I think more often than not, they do play hard. Tortorella is obviously a very good coach. But then they're in that horrible nether region of hockey, which is not quite terrible not to be tanking for Connor Bedard, but not nearly good enough to actually be a playoff team. So it'd actually be better if they had a bad coach. If they brought back Terry Murray, and Tortorella was waiting until next season, that they could just stink this year and try to get a high draft because they're not good enough to be a playoff team, but because Tortorella is such a good coach, they're not going to be completely woeful. Now, as you mentioned, with him and Hayes, you knew he was going to get it with somebody. We all knew it was Tony D'Angelo, who he benched as a healthy scratch for a few games, and now it's Kevin Hayes. One thing about Tortorella, he does not suffer fools gladly. He does not play favorites. I'm always cautious and leery, though, of alienating my star players. There's a reason of the stars. There's different rules for stars than there is for everybody else. But clearly, Tortorella is a smart guy. He's calculated in this respect, and he's clearly trying to motivate Kevin Hayes. I can't wait to, to see what he has to say in front of the Toronto media tomorrow because you, you know he's, he's, he's due an absolutely spectacular quote. And, yeah, he was, he's putting people on blast for, for what, uh, talking about Sheldon Keefe's job security. Last time he was here, uh, we'll see. We'll see yeah. uh, or I guess that was in Philly. Uh, we'll see what, what comes of uh, tomorrow. All right, before we let you go, Variety ranking the greatest movies of all time. They have a top 100. It's not the definitive list or anything, but it is a list. Uh, here's the top 10. Number one, Psycho. Number two, The Wizard of Oz. Number three, The Godfather. Number four, Citizen Kane. Number five, Pulp Fiction. Number six, Seven Samurai. Number seven, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Number eight, It's a Wonderful Life. Number nine, All About Eve. And number 10, Saving Private Ryan. I've seen eight of the 10. Haven't seen Seven Samurai or All About Eve. And this, I've never seen a list where Psycho's number one. It's usually either The Godfather or Citizen Kane. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I've never seen Psycho number one. What, what I, do you make of this list? I assume it's not the 1998 Vince Vaughn version. It's the, yes. the original. Yeah, yeah, the original. You're right. Oh. Yeah, well, we have one of the stupidest ideas ever, right? Gus Van said, how about a shot-for-shot remake of Cycle? Well, why don't I just watch the original Cycle? It's not like inspired by, no, shot-for-shot remake, the dumbest thing ever. Um, I was going to say, Ben, the Hitchcock movie that's normally lauded is Vertigo. Yeah. Sight and Sound, which is a really foo-foo exclusive list of uh, film people like me, uh, that comes out every 10 years. Their list just came out, and Hitchcock's Vertigo is number two on that. Psycho did not make the top 10. So first and foremost, I think Vertigo is the better movie than Psycho, although, of course, Psycho has an incredible Bernard Herrmann score, Janet Leigh getting ice in the shower, all the rest of it. But I think Vertigo is the better movie. Now to the list, love the Godfather on there. I'm with you. Godfather and Susan Kane have to be there. For years, Susan Kane was always the number one. Now the last 10 or 15 years, American Film Institute or Sight and Sound or Variety, they mix it up a little bit, but I still think Susan Kane is always in the top five. Love the love for Pulp Fiction. I'm sure the three of us love that Tarantino classic. When it first came out in 94, I loved it. And I want you to see Seven Samurai. It's one of my yeah. favorite Kurosawa movies. If you love the movies of George Lucas or Francis Ford Coppola, Star Wars, those guys adore uh, Kurosawa, as does Scorsese, as does anybody who loves those movies. Tashiro Mifune, 1954, nearly three hours, sword and sandal epic. Seven Samurai is just an incredible movie. A little surprised Saving Private Ryan made it to the top ten. That's a great war movie, but I, I've got other war movies I have higher. Apocalypse Now, Platoon, among them, but no doubt, first 25 minutes of Saving Private Ryan is awfully special. So that, that's a pretty elite top ten. Adnan, I don't want to uh, go through the whole top 100 with you, but um, 
in general, hearing that top 10, seeing what's missing from there, maybe you looked at the whole list and saw something underranked or not ranked. Uh, you are hardcore about this stuff. What in your mind is the most underrated movie? Like what should be in the top 10 that isn't or should be higher on that list that that's too slept on? Well, I haven't seen the list, but I'll say of the three, and these are my three favorite movies, these should all be in the top ten, which is Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, and Goodfellas. All Scorsese and De Niro collaborations. That's a little shameful. None of those three made the top ten. Goodfellas is probably the most rewatchable movie ever. You know, Bill Simmons, they have that incredible podcast, The Rewatchables, and that's what Goodfellas is. The first hour makes you fall in love with being a gangster, and the final 40 minutes makes you repulsed by being a gangster. But the filmmaking is at such a high level of artistry, and it features such indelible performances, including Pesci winning an Oscar. Goodfellas is the kind of movie you watch that movie you want to go be a filmmaker. Now, Raging Bull is nothing short than a work of art. I remember Scorsese being on Letterman a decade ago, and Letterman goes, you watch that film, and you go, that's truly a work of art. That should be hanging in, like, the Louvre somewhere. But the way he shoots those scenes, and obviously De Niro, very influential acting, he was the first guy to put on weight for a movie, like, to really do it, 60 pounds, as he became the fat failure that is Jake LaMotta, and he shows his viciousness both inside the ring and outside of the ring. It's the kind of film where he's shown anti-hero, and yet he can be somebody who is not necessarily admired, but certainly respected and a character worthy of empathy. And then, of course, Taxi Driver, which, forget about me, Tarantino calls it one of his top three movies of all time. That's the quintessential film about loneliness and urban alienation. Much as a young man at Ryerson when I was 18 years old in 96, walking those mean streets, I felt like I was Travis Bickle back in 1976, walking around New York City and Times Square, seeing all the scum and sordid atmosphere around me. But it's a great film which speaks to the loneliness that young men often feel. So I haven't seen the full list, but normally when I look at these lists, one of those three is always in the top 10, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, or Goodfellas. Goodfellas was actually 12. The other two didn't make the list. Mean Streets did, though. It was in the top 50. So uh, maybe wow. that uh, maybe that does a little something for you there. But yeah, 12 for Goodfellas is uh, lower than you normally see it. The rewatchability is huge for lists like the this. Entire list that if, they, if they don't have Raging Bull and Taxi, I'm discounting the entire list. I had not seen it. I have no interest now looking at it. Now that you told me that, I do love Mean Streets. Mean Streets, I always have. It's my fourth favorite Scorsese film. And the fifth is always a great debate. You can get The Aviator. You can get The Irishman. You can say King of Comedy, Cape Fear. I mean, it's, it's always Gangs of New York. I love so It's always a fun debate. Mean Streets, I mean, that, that really tipped it off for Marty and De Niro together. But that's appalling. That Raging Bull and Taxi are not in the top 100. Wow. Yeah, can't wait for uh, next year's version of this list <laughs> and uh, Top Gun Mavericks in there. And uh, <laughs> you got to come back on to, to talk about that. Okay? All right. As depressing as it is seeing Top Gun Maverick being nominated from the Golden Globes as best motion picture drama, we are reminded by the fact that Golden Globes also did once nominate The Martian starring Matt Damon for best comedy. Yeah. They also once nominated The Tourist. Yeah. Starring Johnny Depp and Angela Jolie, which was widely considered one of the worst movies of the decade. And the good news is Tom Cruise was at least not nominated for Best Actor. And the Golden Globes loved their stars. They nominate everybody who's famous. Even they realize, hey, we can't nominate that kook. Verk's going to have a, have a coronary. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody wants that. Uh, Adnan, uh, hope your, your, your cough uh, clears up. Uh, happy holidays, man. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Blake. Happy holidays, boys. Talk soon. See ya. There's Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. All right. So, what? Well, well I ahead. have a question for you. Okay. Hit me. What is, I think you said what your favorite movie is, but what is the, the movie that's not on there? 
that you most think should be on there or should be higher if you didn't look at the whole 100? Yeah, I didn't look at the whole 100, and I'm I'm familiar with the sight and sound list, but not, yeah, the entire thing. I listened to a podcast about the the way that list is put together and how highfalutin some people's, like, top 10s are and, like, how not um, representative of the rest of non, like, film critic or film hardos. Yeah. Uh, like, it's not representative of people who are just, like, you and me. Like movies, aren't obsessed with it, aren't trying to make a point. So, yeah, this variety list more speaks to those people, which I am a part of. Um, yeah, you know, Pulp Fiction was my go-to answer for best movie, but I feel like it's it's too cliched now, like, to even say it. I, I do. I, I don't think so. It's, it's high on that list. Adnan loves it. Everyone likes it. I don't know if it's, like, the best movie, but it's a very good movie, so. Yeah, I. I throw I, it where you throw it. Yeah. I honestly, that would still be my go-to if somebody asked me what's my favorite movie of all time. I've asked you, like, if you're a movie guy, because I know you're a huge music guy. Mm-hmm. Like, your music list would, that's where you'd be, like, highfalutin, and there'd be nothing. I Listen, I saw your list of your your top albums of the year. Could not, I I, I think I told you, uh, what did you list, your top 50? I, I knew eight or nine artists. Yeah, and technically there were 100 on there, because I, I also did, like, a, hey, these aren't ranked, but here's a bunch of other <laughs> stuff that I like this year. Um, put a playlist out and all that stuff. But that's, um, yeah, I'm much more up on my music than I am on movies and TV. So you don't, do you have a movie take out of this top 10? First of all, have you seen all 10 of those? No. I haven't seen Seven Samurai. I haven't seen All About Eve, which are movies no. from the 1950s. Um, I've seen the rest of these movies. Um, I enjoyed I, them all to, to varying degrees. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with, with Adnan about Saving Private Ryan, which I saw in theaters. And that was, that was back. Remember back in the day when you used to go to a theater and there was somebody who did like a little diatribe. They like talked about the movie. No. That, that was I've a seen thing. That at, I've done that at TIFF. No, that's a, that used to be a real thing. Like you would go to an AMC theaters or, or Cineplex Odeon or whatever. And for like a big movie on a weekend, right? Like before the movie started, there would be somebody who would, like, talk about the movie for, like, five to ten minutes, describe what you were about to see. But anyways, I, I, that's, I distinctly remember that being the preamble to watching Saving Private Ryan, which, yeah, it does have an incredible first 10, 15 the, minutes. The two or three years between us in age are the longest two or three years <laughs> imaginable. I think you have not heard of any of my music. Yeah. I have no idea I what know. you're talking about in terms of back in the day, yeah. like <laughs> as the guys like doing the film projector and t- putting the reels together and stuff. Uh, there's yeah. someone speaking to you and there are those little cartoon popcorns oh, dancing across yeah, the street. Intermission. Yeah, yeah, let's go to the movies. Yeah, um, let's all go to the lobby. Oh, that's is, uh, right. I sorry. believe yeah. what no, the, you're already the in a movie. You're right. Jingle is, happening. yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, my favorite movie that's not on there is the 2000 comedy Ready to Rumble uh, with David Arquette and Scott Kahn, where they uh, get involved in everything that's going on in World Championship Wrestling, WCW. Okay. At the time. Sting, Goldberg, seen, Diamond like, Dallas Page. I ass- this is a joke answer. I assume, like, having no reference point to that movie, like, I can only assume that that's a joke it answer. It has a 22% on Rotten right. Tomatoes. So what? Like, that's irrelevant, though. Like, I, you know what's the. Man, any comedy, yeah. if, you're, if you're trying to figure out if, the, if you're, you're worth spending two hours on a comedy, going to Rotten Tomatoes is, is not a good idea. Yeah, it has a 52% audience score. Okay, well, it's that's a, not... It is not one good. of my favorite movies, but it's, uh, <laughs> it is not... Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. It's not a good movie. Yeah. 2001 Space Odyssey is... Oh. 
legendary. Anyways, okay, before we go, so oh. how many of those movies have you seen? Uh, I don't know. I, I closed the list, but uh, Psycho, not... Wizard of Oz, Godfather, Citizen, Game, Pulp Fiction, Seven Samurai, uh, Two Thousand One Space Odyssey. It's a Wonderful Life, all about Eve saving Private Ryan. Uh, not a lot of them. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I quickly the one movie that's like probably my actual favorite that's not on the list is In Bruges. Yeah, I know we like, talked I, about I, this. I think that's like legitimately a really good movie. Um, I guess like the film people don't like it at the same level, but I find it like film fascinating people. and funny and like well shot and really good performances. I find you fascinating and funny. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, Martin McDonough just doesn't have it like that with the the voters. Yeah, I don't know. He uh, also did Seven Psychopaths, which is really good. Yeah, maybe yeah. I just like him. He's got a new one out, actually, um, Banshees of Inisherin, yeah. which is the same two people as in Bruges. It's the same yeah. two leads. So I'm, I'm, that's kind of bookmarked for me as something I'll maybe watch over the holiday. Yeah, it's got great reviews, although apparently like it's pretty depressing. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's used. Well, I guess you didn't know anything on my music list. If you did know the things on my music list, you would know that depressing is not a problem for me. <laughs> that is the sweet spot. All right. Maybe you should uh, go see that movie then. All right. When we come back. Raptors uh, back in action tonight, trying to snap this six-game losing streak. They're playing a red-hot New York Knicks team. Red-hot. Who did the thing that you're supposed to do and beat the Warriors when they go on the road. They beat them quite handily. And yeah. And they're, they're, they're playing real well To right the now. extent that it's, oh, it's second night of a back-to-back, but the Knicks are at home and they didn't have to play guys big minutes last night. They did lose... Uh, Quentin Grimes, who's doubtful for tonight and is a game-time call. But anyway, we'll talk about that stuff after the break. Yeah, don't spoil The red-hot Knicks. All right, red-hot Knicks, including R.J. Barrett, who's, who's playing a lot better recently. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up next. And uh, plenty more as the fan drive time continues. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Drive time, Sportsnet 590, the fan, Van Ennis, and Blake Murphy. And the Raptors back in action tonight at the world's most famous arena, which I've never been to. Been to New York City a number of times. I've never been to MSG. Oh, yeah. It's, it's awesome. Well, what makes it so awesome? Because, yeah, you know, I, I get baseball stadia are so different, right? Because they're, they're not. They're not symmetrical and, you know, the outdoors and the surroundings are part of it. And football stadiums, they're huge. It, what makes MSG so great? Well, first of all, it's one of the only of those like hockey and basketball arenas that has a unique feel. So we can actually see it in the studio here. So a couple things to point out. One is the roof, mm-hmm. um, very I- iconic and identifiable. Um, you'll also see that the seats are on a different slant than you would maybe um, be used to seeing so there is more of a feeling of being like on top of the action and over the action um, and then more stadiums do this now but for a long time they were the only one who did the like stadium lighting where it's darkened elsewhere so that the lighting on the court is different um, it's also just like the home to a lot of big basketball moments and I know that the Knicks don't been have a while it has been a while but it's also like it's the place everyone gets up to play in and the it's one of those things where like 
you know, there was an era where the Red Sox weren't very good or relevant, but because of all the history that existed there, and yeah, Fenway has the benefit of being maybe the most outlandish baseball park. Um, So you can use a different example too, like, like pick your park, Wrigley has the Ivy, but there was a long stretch where who cares about the Cubs, but because of all the history that was already built in there, it felt extra special that that kind of carries over um, no matter what. So I think that's a part of it. I, I have just fond memories of it myself and not long ago memories, but I was on the road trip in at the trade deadline in 2019. And that was a wild road trip. Uh, to be on as a reporter because it was chaos for the Raptors. So they had obviously uh, would eventually execute the Marcus trade. Now that trade came down on at the deadline, which was a Thursday. So I had been in Philadelphia. Nothing happened. It was a bit of a bust. Uh, I remember taking a cab or an Uber with Tim Bontemps of ESPN and just kind of like, what the heck? Why hasn't anything happened yet? Are they actually going to stand pat? And the Thursday morning, we were at shoot-around. Jonas Valanciunas, who was injured at the time. This was in Atlanta, by the way. Uh, Jonas Valanciunas, who's injured at the time, gives us the big news. Thumbs up. I'm ready to return. I'm back in the lineup tonight. I got that, yeah. I get back to my hotel room to, you know, do what you do between shoot-around and the game, which is mostly just look on at trade deadline time it's mostly just look on twitter for updates mm. and then oh yeah jv's not playing because he's been traded as part of the marcus all deal so Dude. the raptors also had some injuries at that time so that game in atlanta ended up being a wild one because they only had seven players mm-hmm. so technically the trade hadn't been executed yet um so you couldn't, you know, add guys to the empty roster spots, things like that. Sorry, I just looked it up. They had eight players uh, and, and Jordan Lloyd, who, yeah. you know, that's, sure. that's my guy. Yeah. But was not considered a, a playable player at that time. Like Patrick McCaw played 20 minutes in that game, um, which, you know. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't need to slag Patrick McCaw. No, but yeah, but sure. Yeah. That guy's a walking championship. <laughs> so that game was wild. And then. The Saturday, so sorry, the Friday, I'm in New York. I I obviously planned that trip to go to New York early. A friend actually came down and met me in New York. He was going to the game as a fan. Um, But like, I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll get a a spot with with two beds and, and, you know, come down and it's on uh, my employer's dime, the hotel room. Um, No, I never did that. Uh, So I spend the Friday not only waiting on the Gasol deal to become official because we can't talk to Marc Gasol until the deal goes through the league office. And we can't ask Nick Nurse or Masai Jiri about it until the deal goes through. Well, on that Friday, there are reports that the Raptors are doing a couple other moves that as I'm starting to write them up, I'm looking, I'm like, I think this violates the collective bargaining agreement. And I tweeted that out and wrote as much and then ended up like, one of the deal, one of the things that had been reported was the Raptors had signed Ben McLemore to a 10-day contract. Shams had it. Couldn't happen. I get digging, and it wasn't just me. Um, I won't say the person's name because they now work for uh, an agency instead of uh, uh, in the media. But, yeah, we kind of dug in, and we're like, I think this is illegal. Um, so it ended up being all this chaos. And then on the Saturday, there, so the Saturday was the Knicks game. There's the chaos of is Marc Gasol going to get cleared in time 
to play in this game. And if that happens, if the trade is executed, if the trade isn't executed, do they have enough players to play? If the trade is executed, what happens to Malcolm Miller and Chris Boucher who are on this trip but are technically in contract limbo right now because of these weird CBA rules? Um, so it was a fascinating day. Anyway, the friend that I that came down to New York with me still claims he got the first ever Marc Gasol jersey as a, because <laughs> because while all this was happening, we went to the big NBA store yeah. and he got like a custom-made Marc Gasol Raptors jersey. Oh, so really? he claimed, and I think it's probably a pretty legitimate claim yeah. to have the first. Anyway, this is a very long story, but I that is like as far as the championship year goes and the work that I did and the cool moments from that season, that's like right up there, like just below the championship series. Dude. Um, so that, and, and that was my first time at MSG. Oh, that was your first ever time. Yeah. So that all of that, you know, just kind of builds into it. I also think there's, um, there's an element to MSG too, of like it being also a very famous boxing and wrestling arena mm-hmm. for me, like as a fan of those things where like, yeah, there are just, it goes beyond just basketball and hockey too. Yeah. So, and it's, yeah. So it's not necessarily just how it looks or the atmosphere, which is apparently also great. And it's, you know, the, the renovations that they did was mm-hmm. not that long ago. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I realized for for listeners that was a long story, but I got in my feelings about 2019. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because I was thinking about the championship that the yeah. Raptors won in 2019 and how integral to the, the whole thing Marcus Saul was. Because yes. at the time it felt like, yeah, it's just like kind of you know you're really cheering. Uh, like I guess you could use another center, I suppose. But and- isn't he way past his prime? But no, holy cow, go back and look at how integral he was defensively. You don't beat the Bucks without him. Like no. the, there are others, and and the the, the Sixers. Sixers yeah. I mean the way he neutralized Joel Embiid, and he didn't even really neutralize him because like the Sixers were still like plus eighty or something mm. like that with Embiid on the court in that series. Well, he's but, good. But yeah, the the move in that series that kind of settled things for for Toronto was we're going to tether Marc Gasol to Joel Embiid. If Embiid comes out, Gasol comes out, and then Ibaka goes in and things like that. And then, yeah, he was a huge part of the strategy on Giannis, where Giannis had that quote with who was then my colleague Eric Name at at The Athletic. He told him, like, yeah, I like close my eyes at night, and I see Marc Gasol. Um, there getting in my way once I beat a defender. Uh, so yeah, that was very cool. Um, is the reason that I'm so fondly reminiscing about 2019 right now, the fact that the Raptors have lost six games in a row for the first time, non Tampa in like over a decade. Uh, and they're playing a Knicks team that is red, red hot. So maybe that losing streak continues. I don't know. Maybe I'm coping. Yeah. Maybe I'm, but that's fine. Yeah. Like we can all do that. Um, better days are ahead because they can't get much worse. Like losing six in a row is, is a prolonged, prolonged losing streak for unprecedented in this era of Raptors basketball. Yeah. And not all of it has been ugly. And you know what? Some of the ugly ones have been mitigated by the fact that, you know, the magic are good now and yada, yada, yada. And without OG Ananobi for some of those, whatever. Yeah. And I think Michael Grange did a great job actually on sportsnet.ca to, to like, go back and and illustrate the point of how you know okay maybe the record is is not a long-term thing and maybe the six game losing streak is 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 out of the ordinary over the last two years but the shooting stuff is not no and the the rim protection yeah Yeah. and that's something i don't know if i'll end up writing it this week or or next week when i'm at a couple games but mark gasol is like a really fascinating jump off point for the rim protection conversation because it's not like mark gasol was jumping out of the gym at that stage he could barely jump like i probably couldn't get over a phone not sure he could dunk yeah 
really. Yeah. And um, but he was an elite rim protector. Those things like rim protection looks different. Rim deterrence looks different. And the Raptors are just like so not capable of doing that with anyone mm-hmm. at this point. So, uh, yeah. Grange did a great job of that piece. And my main take, and I think I said this yesterday, whether it was with you or with Will Lou, is like you can look at all of those things individually and, and find your way through, oh, this there was a positive in this game or this won't happen, all that often. But they, it keeps happening. It yeah. keep, you're 4-11 over your last 15. You are closer to the bottom than out of the play well, at this point. And there is a, the through line too, right? Like, well, you may say it's, it's different things on different days. Generally not. Like, it's generally been not enough three-point shooting, not enough mm-hmm. shooting in general. And yeah, just to rim protection. Like, there's just half-court offense and and protection at, at the rim. Like Really, you could say half-court offense and half-court defense, which yeah. is... That basically sounds like basketball. That's a lot of what they've struggled at. Yeah, it's like the Raptors (laughs) play in transition more than any other team in the league, and they play seventy-seven point five percent of their possessions in the half court. So you like the Raptors play in transition offensively and defensively, like Mm. offensively way more than anyone else, and then defensively you want to limit transition. Mm. Um, You don't want the other team playing in transition. The Raptors play in transition more than anyone, and it's still less than a quarter of the game. The half-court part of things is really yeah. important. Yeah, it is. They're not very good at it. We'll see if they're any better tonight. Um, they get to see R.J. Barrett uh, in uh, in New York Knicks uh, colors, and he had a slow start to the season. The last, like, five, six games have been much, much better. Knicks fans are always going to look at the, the top two guys in that draft class and think what could have been. I mean, they were saying that at the time. And boy, it's not always that that the the general consensus is correct, but Zion and John. For, yeah, for anyone who doesn't remember, that draft went Zion Williamson, John Morant, and really the way the guys after that have gone, like maybe you would put Darius Garland ahead of RJ Barrett. You probably would at this point, but otherwise, like RJ looks like yeah, it's fine. the right pick. Like you have to get pretty far down that draft before you get into uh before you get into guys, you you would bump up that high. So, yeah. No, they screwed. Well, no, they didn't screw up. They just, the lottery balls did not bounce the way that they, they could have and, and were more likely to do. Uh, yeah. But it's all right. They RJ's were, a nice player. They were basically hoping that, you know, one of New Orleans or Memphis would make the wrong call. And I, I don't say that to be negative about RJ, but Zion and Jaw are superstars. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So we got Gary Trent Jr. still out for this game. Ken Birch also out now. A non-COVID illness. Quentin Grimes and Obi Toppin out for the Knicks. Okay. But the Knicks are flying high right Quentin now. Quentin Grimes is pretty good, though. Okay. Grimey? He's a, yeah. Right. He's like, a, like, I guess, like a mini OG or like a, like a if OG's a 3-4-5, Grimes is like a 2-3 defender. He's like a mini, kind of a mini OG. It's All right. So maybe that's the break that the Raptors need. For him not to be in the lineup to maybe. win a basketball. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe they just need to hit some three-point shots. That would be helpful. Uh, we'll see if they're they're capable of doing so at the world's most famous arena coming up at the top of the hour. Um, elsewhere, we we talked about the Chris Bassett media availability, but we didn't talk about or didn't talk as much about the Ross Atkins media availability mm-hmm. uh, last week that preceded the Bassett media availability. Or is that Monday? I don't know. 
Like, I, I, I don't know. And they were at the same time. I I checked them both out later, so mm-hmm. I don't even know what order they came in. Anyways, um, there wasn't a ton out of the 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 Atkins thing, and, and Ben Nichols and Smith wrote about a lot of it, including um, the fact that they were probably moving away from the run prevention stuff that they had done in acquiring pitchers and signing Kevin Kiermaier to, to more offensive uh, additions. But he also said we're a projected 90-win team or above. The value of improving your team at that point is so significant that we will work hard to do that. That was in response to a question about, hey, is there just like minor moves to come? And it's, yeah, you can't look at the list of remaining free agents and not come to the conclusion that that is a minor move because say for Michael Conforto, who I guess is going to get paid like he's not a minor move and might not end up being that. Yeah, the rest of these guys are minor additions. But when you're already a playoff team, which the Blue Jays were 92 win team a season ago and, are at least in the starting pitching department equal, if not better, than they were a season ago, and maybe offensively slightly less with Kevin Kiermaier instead of Teoscar Hernandez. But the run prevention that he brings, like you can argue that it's it's pretty close to a wash. Anything done additionally, yeah, it, there's a huge, huge bonus to to doing that. There is. So this is what I would call, you know, a, the marginal win curve or the marginal value of win curve and it's something i've been talking about and trying to write about since back in my fan graphs days before i was you know settled in as a as a basketball guy for a long time and it's that yes when we're evaluating players a tool like wins above replacement is really helpful to compare you know across situations it's not fair to ding a guy playing on the oakland athletics for that team being bad if his performance is really good however the value of, say, a Michael Conforto is very different at this stage to the Oakland A's than it is to the Toronto Blue Jays. And that's because of where the leverage points are in the standing. So the first big leverage point is, can you get into the wild card mix? So, you know, going from 71 to 74 wins doesn't do a lot for you. Going from 85 to 88 wins could be super meaningful in terms of the wild card race. And then the next leverage point is, can you avoid the wild card altogether now and win the division? So if you're a 90 win team, an extra two or three wins has monster leverage. And we're not great at projecting like last year, Fangraphs, for example, projected the top four AL East teams to all have almost identical records, but that's because the average outcome is that. Um, So you're not locking in these wins you know, you can't be certain of that. But if you're projecting ahead, the value of those extra wins when you're already very, very good is important. And you can kind of look at team building in three ways. You need to find great players first. Then you need to have an absence of bad players. And I think that a lot of their moves last year were about trying to do that, trying to have an absence of bad players. Uh, it didn't entirely work out. But on the position player side, it really did. They had 11 guys who were like, everyday caliber players basically yeah. and Rymal Tapia was the only one of them who didn't hit at league average most of them were at least passable defensively um you know now they're trying to address the the rotation depth and the bullpen to make sure there are no weak spots there but now the thing is is like okay how do you how do you tweak and and find every potential half a win or extra run here and there and that right now is if the season started today like Spencer Horwitz or Nathan Lucas would beyond this roster Mm. and those guys might be nice like i i'm not super high on either of those guys as like a a long-term mlb piece um at least at a starting level but like if you are a team that has designs on winning the division 
those are spots you can point to pretty quickly and be like, yeah, we could upgrade that spot. And maybe it's not the spiciest move or the sexiest name, but you got you got to address it. And the rat and the Jays have said that they have um, you know money available to spend still, or they can deal from the the catching depth as yeah. well. To go back to the Mets point, you know, and your kind of larger point about how high spending teams get into the World Series conversation a lot, um, to use a line from Fabulous back in the day, money doesn't buy happiness, but it's a damn good down payment. Yeah. That's what we're looking at here. If you've got a couple extra million to spend, it's not going to lock in that division, but it's not going to hurt. Yeah. So go spend your five million on Robbie Grossman or yeah. God, or uh, honestly, uh, I, I, we we don't have a ton of time left in the show to get know, into a, like an in-depth conversation about who our favorite, like, not scrap heap guy, that's too much, but like <laughs> the guys that are remaining are, are not guys you want playing every day, but yeah, they serve a purpose. Maybe a Friday thing. Yeah. <laughs> or Thursday. Actually, yeah, we'll, we'll see how tomorrow goes. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's a number of them out there, um, and some of them uh are well known in the division some of them used to be highly touted prospects uh yeah we'll we'll talk about them later on in the week but it is time now for last call brought to you by bet rivers it's a whole new game and uh, naturally let's start with the toronto raptors who are on the road at msg to play the new york knicks and the knicks are one and a half point favorites at home um scotty barnes his uh, total four points rebounds and assists is 25 and a half OGN and OB 23 and a half. Oh, we got an uh, NBA MVP update on uh, the odds on that. Uh, Jason Tatum, your favorite, plus 250. Giannis Antetokounmpo, plus 275. Luka Doncic, plus 350 to win the Eastern Conference. The Celtics, the favorites, plus 160 bucks, plus 225. And uh, Nets, plus 600. How special. Trevor Lawrence record over 235 and a half passing yards and over one and a half passing yard uh, passing touchdowns against the Jets Thursday night football. Plus 235. Let's talk about that MVP thing tomorrow, maybe, because I participated in, in Tim Bontemps uh, straw poll at ESPN. He does every at the third mark every every year. Let's do that. Yeah. All right. That was last call brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. We're going to have that conversation plus many others tomorrow on another edition of the Fan Drive Time. Sportsnet 590, The Fan.